Our scripture today is taken from the prophecy of Isaiah, uh, where we will be reading chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor the Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as the people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, and the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Join me in prayer. Our Lord, our God, we are here to worship. We are here to learn. We are here to be changed. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of thy law. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. You know, I'm thankful that I was brought up in a church where Jesus was the center and focus of our attention. Uh, We sang about Jesus. We heard Jesus preached and taught. Uh, We were told of the eternal significance of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And we grew up learning that Jesus was the focus of Christmas. And I'm thankful for that heritage. And I'm thankful for the heritage of this church that teaches the same thing. However, having said that, all is not well. Uh, Recent uh, surveys have shown that many uh, evangelical Christians could not uh, correctly answer questions about the basic identity of this baby born on Christmas Day. And this leaves us with a perplexing question. If he is such an important figure, if he is the focus of our attention, why don't we know more about him? Well, for the Advent season, we are looking into the various names of Jesus uh, that is given to us in Isaiah 9-6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. But there is more here than just the names of Jesus. For these names reveal to us the very character and identity 
of the son that's prophesied by Isaiah. And it's only as we discover the unique character and identity of Jesus that we're able to understand the unprecedented and supernatural nature of what took place that first Christmas day. Last week, we looked at uh, the name Wonderful Counselor. And today, uh, we look at the second description given here by Isaiah. He is mighty God. Now, before we uh, open up the text, uh, I would like for us to go down a little side road. For here in in chapter 9, verse 6, we are faced with a glaring paradox. And it's a paradox that has challenged uh, theologians and historians ever since the very beginning of the church. And for some, even today, it is very perplexing. So at the risk, risk of oversimplification, I'd like to try to explain to you a little bit about what this paradox is all about. Well, here it's in verse 6. Isaiah writes, For unto us a child is born. And this is a clear depiction of the humanity of Jesus. That he was physically born to a mother and came into the world as a baby. That he had to be fed. He had to be changed. He had to be cared for. And yet in the very same verse... He is called the mighty God, which is an undeniable reference to his divinity. In other words, Jesus is called 100% God and 100% man. Now, the paradox is this. How can he be both? How can he be a human being with all of our weaknesses and limitations, and also have the attributes of God, who we know to be infinite, eternal, and completely unchangeable. And so through the years, theologians have developed some rather interesting ideas about how to answer this paradox. One has been... That Jesus really wasn't 100% God or 100% man, but he was sort of 50% of each. Well, when you look at it, that raises more questions than it answers. It also denies the words of Paul in Colossians 2.9. that he said, in Jesus, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. Others have denied the humanity of Jesus. They exalt his divinity, the divine nature, so much that they ignore the fact that Jesus was completely human. And then there are those who deny the deity of Jesus in favor of his humanity. A lot of cults are like that. They deny that Jesus was God. Many liberal theologians tell us there is no way that Jesus, the man, could also be God. But in calling him mighty God... Isaiah is having us to understand that the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him who is a baby. And this baby possesses all the attributes of the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God. And outside of that divinity and that deity, there is no possibility 
of salvation. For you see, salvation of the human race is something that only God could pull off. So let us now turn our attention for a few moments on this phrase that Isaiah uses, the mighty God. This child, this Messiah to be born is called mighty God. And in the Hebrew, basically what it means, it's a term that carries the idea of a conquering king. Mighty God means that he is mighty in power. And there are so many passages in scriptures that teach this. You know, we talk a lot at First Pres and other places about the Great Commission. But do we really pay attention to the preface of the Great Commission that Matthew gives us there in chapter 28? Here's what he writes. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all power in heaven and on earth is given to me. Therefore, go into the nations and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you see, the entire missionary enterprise of the church for all ages is grounded in the divine nature of the Lord Jesus Christ who possesses all power in heaven and on earth. Now, if I were to go around this morning and ask you, what is your favorite part of the Christmas story? Some of you, I'm sure, would talk about the uh, virgin birth. Uh, others, about the angels uh, that came and proclaimed uh, his birth and sang of his birth. Or maybe you would uh, think about Mary and Joseph in their long, dangerous journey going to pay their taxes. Or maybe the actual birth of the baby in the manger. Or the coming of the wise men. All of these would be wonderful responses. And all of these have, have inspired countless songs and sermons. But I want to submit today that I believe the most powerful account of the Christmas story comes in the opening verses of the Gospel of John. For here in his gospel, John does not write of nativity. He writes of eternity. And there you will find none of the traditional narrative of angels and, and uh, shepherds and wise men. John writes of timeless truths. Truths which feed the mind, nourish the heart, and bring rest to the souls. John writes about what took place even before the beginning of time. And he uses language which directly reflects the opening verses of the Bible itself. In the beginning. John is saying that what you're about to read here is, has just the same significance as the opening words of Genesis. And so John, in writing about Jesus, opens his gospel with these words in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and here he is taking us back to the very dawn of time itself 
And here he writes that it is impossible with the limits of human language to demonstrate that there is a closer relationship between God and the Word. John is saying that when you think about one, you're always to think about the other. And then John takes it uh, even a step further. And writing in the spirit of Isaiah 9-6, he says, The Word was God. The Word was God coming into the world. The Word, he says, became flesh and dwelt among us. And it reflects the words of so many of our creeds. It's articulated so beautifully in the Nicene Creed that we, re- we recited a few, months, a few moments ago. Here's what it says. We believe in one God, one Father Almighty, the maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, being of one substance with the Father. And down through the centuries, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, in examining the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, have concluded that God is one in essence and three in person. Jesus, we know, to be the essence of the Father, truly God, truly man, very God, a very God. You remember that remarkable event that took place about a week after Easter Sunday when the apostle Thomas, who had not been present with the other disciples, had seen Jesus And he told the disciples after they reported to him seeing Jesus, unless I can take my hands and put it in his side and hold his hands where where the holds were, I cannot believe. And then Jesus appeared to Thomas that night. And the instinctive response of Thomas was to fall on his knees and begin to worship and exclaim, my Lord and my God. And notice that Jesus didn't correct him. Jesus didn't say, you know, Thomas, you've got this whole thing wrong. I'm not God. No, he accepted Thomas's worship. And we also need to understand that the verses that we're quoting to from John are not simply limited to John's introductory statements in his gospel. But John's gospel is known for what we call the I am statements, the I am sayings. And there were eight of them. I am, of course, being the very sacred name given to God in the Old Testament. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. 
I am the gate of heaven. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the truth and the life. I am the vine and you are the branches. And in highlighting his own eternal nature, Jesus also says in John's gospel, before Abraham was, I am. I love the words of the songwriter, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us and men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Through both the Old and the New Testaments, and certainly not limited to the book of John, the rights and the privileges and the authority and the attributes of God are given to Jesus. And then back to those opening statements in John, he takes it even a step further. There in chapter 1, verses 4, he says, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. This Jesus is the light that overcomes the darkness of this world. And it is in darkness that sin lives and thrives. You see, when sin takes hold of life, it does so in a deceptive, seductive, enslaving manner. The subtle, infectious, and tranquilizing deception of sin doesn't feel like sin at first. Much to the contrary, it can feel fulfilling. It can feel satisfying. It can even feel exhilarating until you have to face the consequences. And when darkness and spiritual apathy and indifference and sin invades the life and it begins to bring poison and affect those that all those it comes in contact with, the effects are devastating. And so when Isaiah writes, to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and he is mighty God, what Isaiah is telling us is this, that he is mighty in grace, that he is mighty in mercy, that he is mighty in love. That he specializes in, re- specializes in restoring and liberating the soul. And in breaking the crippling, restrictive, enslaving bonds of sin. The light of the world. We also know that sin carries a deep darkness within our culture. We know that, don't we? It convinces a culture that the gospel is irrelevant, that it's archaic, that it's out of touch, that it has nothing to say. And even when sin challenges those thoughts, the reaction is often one of hostility and aggression. For you see, sin and darkness do not like to be exposed to the light. And I believe that for us, brothers and sisters... The temptation of Christmas is to look for only the comfort, for only the joy, and only the hope that Christmas brings. But what we need to understand, this is only effective when we realize the whole Christmas message. 
He is mighty God, mighty to save, mighty to transform, and mighty to love. Now, I would like to, at this point, deal with a question uh, that has come up in the minds of many and maybe yours this morning. And the question is this. Why is it that this power is not more evident in our world today? And the short answer I will give you and try to explain is that this power that Isaiah and others talk about is a veiled power. What do I mean? Well, the circumstances of the birth of Christ really do not lend itself to an understanding that he is mighty God. These are very ordinary circumstances. Born in Bethlehem's manger to Mary and Joseph, a very ordinary couple on their way to register for the tax given by Caesar. And in a very ordinary way, she gives birth to a son. She wraps him in cloth and lays him in a manger. She had to care for him. She had to nurse him. His diapers had to be changed. How ordinary in the sight of men. These are not circumstances that remind us of divinity, but poverty. And the Apostle Paul goes on by saying, He was born of a woman. And the writer to the Hebrews says, In all ways he was made like unto us. And I think this is so important for us to see because even today, in the minds of many, the power of Almighty God is not evident. The world turns on a fixed orbit. The sun rises and sets on a regular basis. Seasons come and go. People live and die. So what's the big deal, they ask? This is just the universe operating as it always had and shows no evidence of a supernatural being guiding history to an appointed end. So how are we to explain that this Savior is much more than just a baby in a manger. How do we understand that he is truly mighty God? Well, I can tell you where it starts. It starts with the grace of humility. The understanding that we have can only come as God himself reveals the truth to us. It cannot be known through human wisdom or the natural intellect. For unto us the, the truth of Almighty God is, has to be revealed. It can only be seen with the eye of faith. And this, of course, is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, For the, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Remember the big question that Jesus brought to his disciples. After they had already been him with him for a while, hearing his teaching and seeing his miracles, Jesus finally asked them, 
Who do people say that I am? And the disciples seemed to be a little confused. Well, Lord, some people say you're John the Baptist. Others guess that you are Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But Jesus, with a penetrating question, confronts them with this. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says to Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but only the God in heaven. You see, all through the life of Christ, his power was for the most part veiled. The kingdom he announced was not apparent He was mocked and made fun of. His message was rejected. And even at the end of his life, what do you see? He's arrested and tried and scourged and hung on a cross as a common criminal. And they hung a sign on the cross mocking him saying, this is the king of the Jews. But we who see with the eyes of faith know that God has revealed That he is almighty God. And when we grasp the power of this truth, the Savior born in a manger has a life-changing power. I want to say, though, that that which is veiled, that which may be hidden now, is one day going to be made completely known. Paul says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord comfort and encourage one another with these words and of course those wonderful words of Paul in chapter 2 of Philippians having talked about his sacrifice Peter Paul says therefore God exalted him to a place the highest place and he gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue shall acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father that day is coming brothers and sisters you and I are going to be a part of it And that veiled power that the world does not see is to become evident from shore to shore. You see, the world today would like to to keep and worship and celebrate the child in the manger. But to forget that he is almighty God, 
but to those of us who come with a spirit of humility, longing to know the truth. God has revealed that this babe, this son that is born, is indeed Almighty God. And for all of us who receive it, it is the ground of our salvation. It is the hope of our future. And may your Christmas this year indeed be special as you worship the babe who is indeed almighty God. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that what is not available to us through our own efforts and through our own reasoning has been freely given to us by your Spirit. May his mighty power come to us, redeem us, transform us, restore us, and liberate us, and one day conquer all those who stand against the truth. We ask in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.